Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, despite what happened yesterday, I'm strangely uh, excited for 2014. Remember that time when MU had won and the Chiefs were, were leading in the game? Remember how awesome that was for like an hour? No, but really, I don't know if it's, you know, the 13 part of 2013 that's kind of spooky, but like, I'm, I don't know. There's something about 2014 that just sounds uh, energizing. So I'm looking forward to this new year. And today we're going to be rejoining the series that we were on uh, prior to the Advent season in December. So we're going to be back in the book of Romans this morning. We had covered... Um, Kind of briefly, chapters 1 through 3, but then more specifically in depth, actually 1 through 4, 5, 6, and 7. And so today we're going to rejoin uh, the story here in chapter 8. It's going to be the last chapter that we're going to cover in this series. Before we begin, though, I want to kind of review some of the, the kind of the major points that we made in those first seven chapters because it really is kind of the basics of the gospel. And so let's review some of the main points. Paul begins uh, specifically by letting us know that, that no one is righteous, that, that all of us were born um, hostile towards God. We were all enemies towards God just in our natural state because of original sin. Um, but despite that, uh, in, in Romans 5, it says, while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile towards God, Christ died for us. That, it, that he justified us, he made things right between God and man, that if we received uh, his death and resurrection on our behalf, that we would have the opportunity to be in a right relationship with him. Um, thirdly, he says, if we receive that offer of forgiveness, that we are, are given a new identity, that, that we are, are now children of God. In fact, he said that we are one with Christ. So everything that is true about Christ is also true about us. And we spent several weeks talking about how do we live out of that reality of what's true about us as opposed to what we might believe or what we might experience in life that we think is true because of experience about how we have to decide that things are true and live out of that. Fourthly, we, we, because we've been rescued and redeemed, Paul says we are now dead to sin. He said we are, sin is no longer our master. We spent a week talking about how we are all slaves. We are just either slaves to sin or we are slaves to righteousness. One, we don't have a choice about. We're born that way. The other, we have the opportunity to choose to be a slave to God, a slave to righteousness. And we talked about um, these two fields, if you remember the illustration, that, that when, when we receive God's death on our behalf, that he takes us out of the field or the reign of death and he transports us over into this field or this reign of grace. And we talked about this road that was kind of in the middle of those two fields. And we said that once we've been transported over here to this, this field of grace, Satan can no longer touch us, but he can yell across the road at us. And one of the last things that Paul talked about in chapter 7 um, is this idea, this, this truth that we battle between our flesh and spirit, that those things are at war with one another. And Paul, you know, so vividly talked about the things that I want to do, the person that I want to be, I, I can't be. And I end up, you know, doing things and being somebody that I don't want to. So there's this battle between our flesh and our spirit going on on a daily basis. So you got all that, right? You're all good with this. You're living out of that, right? Ready to move on. Checked it off the list. Okay. So now we're going to go into chapter eight. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles there. Romans chapter eight, page 785.
And this is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. And it begins with the word, therefore. And, and what that means is that, based on everything that we've heard so far in chapters 1 through 7, now these things are true. Okay, so based on all that we've discovered so far, here are some things that are true because of that. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Man, those are an amazing couple of verses. So, so let's talk about what, what, what that means and then what it doesn't mean. Okay, first of all, we have this, this term in here that we hear a lot in terms of a legal term, this, this word condemnation or condemn. And what that means is if there's no condemnation, it means there will be no punishment or no sentencings for sins that we have committed or sins that we will commit. Okay? No condemnation for those things. So, and when we look at this, I mean, this is obviously good news. In Romans 6, 23, Paul made it very clear that the wages of sin is death, that that's what we deserve. But then the rest of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So despite what we deserve, God offers us this thing that we don't deserve, that we are free from the law of sin and death. And Paul can be a little bit wordy at times, a little technical, so I want to take us to another passage that I think really explains this whole idea really well, too. Turn your Bibles over to John chapter 3, page 738. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, pretty familiar first verse at least. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, there's that word again, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so as we read that, we see this amazing picture of God's heart, that, that he desires that nobody be, 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 sorry, would be condemned. He desires to save everyone, but we also see this side of him that is just, that if we you know, reject his son, that we will be condemned as well. So there's this, this truth and grace balance there. And so this no condemnation thing, what does it mean for us? So, so if I am in Christ, and I, I won't be condemned for the sins I've done, for the sins I'll do in the future, and what does it mean? Is it kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card? Does it really matter what I do? Can I just do whatever I want if it's all forgiven? Not at all. So deliverance from divine condemnation does not mean deliverance from divine discipline. Okay, let's take a look at another verse uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And so it's kind of like, you know, when you know your parents really love you is when they discipline you. Because if they didn't care, they'd just let you do whatever you want. And this is what God is saying to us. Because you're my child, I'm going to discipline you. <laughs> there are going to be times when you need to be corrected. 
So it doesn't, doesn't mean we won't be divinely disciplined, but it also doesn't mean that we're free from divine accountability. Let's look at this verse in Galatians. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So we will be held accountable for our sinful actions. It's not like just because we won't be condemned uh, that we won't suffer consequences from our actions. So we will be disciplined, we will suffer consequences, but our standing before God will never change. You understand the difference between those things? Okay, our eternal standing before him is secure. We will no longer be condemned, but we will be disciplined, we will be held accountable for our actions. Let's look at verses three and four in Romans chapter eight. He says this, for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. You know how hard it is to take all of this and try to explain it to you people? (laughs) I read this stuff and I'm just like, what? Can you just make it more simple for me? So what he's trying to describe here is the gospel, okay? And what he's saying is that the Old Testament law, and we talked about that that was like in the Old Testament that included the Ten Commandments, but also a lot of other kind of, um, I want to say rules, but guidelines in how to live. Okay, so God gave his people all these guidelines of how to live, and part of that, of what the law is, includes the Ten Commandments, which we're probably most familiar with. Okay, so he gives all those things, but the problem with that is that those things could not um, overcome sin. The law itself, it can bring light to our flaws, it can condemn our actions, it could even entice us to sin more. Paul says at one time, I wouldn't even know what it means to covet unless the law said, do not covet. Most of us don't even know what that word means, but then it's in the Ten Commandments, and you're like, well, what does that mean? And then you're like, oh, that's a sin? Maybe I'll go do it, okay? So the law could do all those things, but it could not remove our sin. The only way that our punishment could be taken away was by God sending his perfect and flawless and sinless son to be an offering for us. R.C. Sproul said it like this. He said, what our morality can never achieve, God can achieve. What our behavior and performance are incapable of attaining, God can attain for us. That is the gospel. We cannot, he can. It is that simple. So let me pause here for a moment and ask us this. Do we appreciate the depth of the Father's love for us? You see, because we can hear all of this legal jargon explaining to us how, you know, we won't be punished now because of what Jesus did for us and he's taken these things away. And all that stuff is true. But don't lose the love story that's going on here. John MacArthur described this reality this way with with a story. He said this. He said, the story is told of a man who operated a drawbridge. At a certain time each afternoon, he had to raise the bridge for a ferry boat and then lower it quickly for a passenger train that crossed at high speed a few minutes later. One day, the man's young son was visiting his father at work and decided to go down below to get a better look at the ferry as it passed. Fascinated by the sight, he did not watch carefully where he was going and he fell into the giant gears. One foot became caught and the boy was helpless to free himself. 
The father saw what happened, but knew that if he took time to extricate his son, the train would plunge into the river before the bridge could be lowered. But if he lowered the bridge to save the hundreds of passengers and crew members on the train, his son would be crushed to death. When he heard the train's whistle indicating it would soon reach the river, he knew what he had to do. His son was very dear to him, whereas all the people on the train were total strangers. The sacrifice of his son for the sake of the other people was an act of pure grace and mercy. That story portrays something of the infinitely greater sacrifice God the Father made when he set his only beloved son to earth to die for the sins of mankind, to whom he owed nothing but condemnation. Don't lose sight of that. There's a lot of Christians that spend a lot of time worrying about what everybody thinks on different topics and issues. And I have those certain people that I know kind of when I cross paths with them, they're going to ask me questions because I'm a pastor, you know, and they see me out in public and they're like, hey, I was reading this the other day and, and what, do you think, what do you think this means and, and what do you think, you know, and a lot of times it's just like really obscure crap, you know, and I'm just like, who cares, man? <laughs> you know, how is that going to help me live differently tomorrow? What is that going to mean for the way I love somebody or, or don't love somebody? And I just see so many Christians sometimes that just get caught up in so much mumbo-jumbo that's just like, you know, guys, don't, don't miss the heart of the gospel here, of how far God went to save us. And I feel like people sometimes choke out the, the love story of God's great sacrifice for us. Because you see, it's, 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 it's possible to be right in your understanding of what God did for us on the cross and to know that in our heads but never experience the depth of that in our hearts, the, the weight of that grace and love. And the, the depth at which you're able to absorb that and live from that is directly related to your ability then to, to love other people with that same grace and love. You know, we've talked about stories in here that talk about you know, those who have been loved much and forgiven much you know, love others much. That's where we need to spend our time. That's what I want to tell that guy. You know what? <laughs> Go back tomorrow and really think about how much God loves you and then see how much that little trivial thing in the Bible really matters now. <laughs> That's what I want to say. Because it's a tragedy. We need to savor every morning when we wake up. We need to wake up and the first thing that needs to come to our mind is how grateful we are for what God has done for us. Because I guarantee you, if you start your day like that, the rest of your day is going to look a lot differently than maybe how you've been living it. You may have noticed in the first four verses that we looked at here, uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned two times. And that's significant because in the first seven chapters of Romans, the Holy Spirit's only mentioned once. And then in chapter eight, it's mentioned almost 20 times. Because in the first seven chapters, Paul is talking about our condition kind of apart from God. And now he's saying that, you know, now that you're in Christ, there's this spirit that's in you. And it's, it's so key to understanding how to live the life that I'm describing to you. And so we're going to see it many times. And in verses 5 through 8, Paul basically divides every human into two camps. Let's look at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, 
but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So Paul says there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who live according to the sinful nature who are condemned, and those who live according to the Spirit and are not condemned. That's it. But as humans, you know, we like to try to find this mysterious third camp, somewhere in between. And the people that like to kind of put themselves in that camp are the people that kind of like to define themselves as morally good people who who have a belief or who say that they believe that there is a God. So what is wrong with that category? Why can we not have this third camp? School starts tomorrow. Let's go. Got to get the hamsters moving. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Tell me, tell me the fallacy in thinking that there can be a third camp. Okay, that we're, we're able to pull it off in our own goodness, and our own morality without Christ. That we can be good in our own strength. Okay, which is a lie. What else? Yeah, in that third camp, we determine, you know, how we define what moral goodness is, right? We become the judges of our own goodness, okay? Good, anything else? Are you sure? Yes, Dave. Yeah, yeah, if we could attain righteousness through our works, then Christ died for nothing. What's the point of him coming and going through all of that if we could do it on our own? Good. Okay, in verses 5 through 8, Paul is inviting the audience to examine, examine their hearts. In 2 Corinthians thirteen five, he wrote this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Okay, and I think that's a good thing to do because there are some people who call themselves Christians because of what they do. They, well, you know, I, I pray when I eat, I, I come to church, I, I give some money, uh, I'm generally a good person. And so Paul says, okay, well then test yourselves a little bit. So I want to ask us all this morning just some tough questions based on what we just read in Romans 5 through 8. And that's this. What is the focus of your life? What, what is, what is your, your mind and your heart set on? Are you preoccupied, preoccupied with goals and ambitions and the desires and appetites of this world? And here's a really great question. When you have nothing to think about, what do you think about? So when you're doing mindless activity, folding laundry, doing the dishes, maybe going on a a long drive if you drive to Kansas City for work or if you're on a trip or whatever, or you're standing in the shower, you know, and how you just kind of stand there for minutes and the hot water's kind of coming on you and you're just kind of there, in those times, what do you think about? 
Do you think about the things of God? Or do you think about the things of men? Does your mind naturally in those moments go to prayer or to praise or to thankfulness or to that friend you know who's in need and you're, you're trying to figure out how can I encourage them, how can I love them more? Or does your mind more consistently go to worry or to anger or to lust or to greed or how do I get my hands on that next thing that I want? Or if you're a people pleaser, how, how, does everybody like me right now? Who's not happy with me? How am I going to make them happy? Do we dwell on something bigger than just this moment? Something bigger than ourself that can so easily preoccupy us? And I would say for me that's grown over time. Paul talks about, you know, let your mind be transformed. It's a process. In the beginning, I probably didn't go to those places as naturally as I do now. Now when I tend to have kind of time to mindlessly think, and especially I'm rocking this new kid that I have, you know, in the rocker, at night, in the middle of the night, it's like, what am I thinking about, you know? I naturally now go to prayer. I, I pray for people. That's just how my mind's been trained now over time. Paul makes this, this very clear in verse 8. He says, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. The only way that we can have the Spirit in us, a couple things have to have happened. One is that we have to have acknowledged and confessed that we are sinful people and that we need a Savior to come and save us. And we had to have, to have received that, Christ's forgiveness for us. That's one part of the equation. And unfortunately, a lot of times, that's the only part that people really receive. The other part of the equation is this whole part of, of making ourselves as slaves to righteousness, of saying to Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. See, those, those two things should happen simultaneously, but a lot of times they don't. Um, and so we, we have to deal with this Lord part over here at some time. And what that means is that where you come to him and you say, God, everything that I have, everything that I am is yours. I surrender my career, the, the, the money you've given me to manage, I, I surrender my kids, my thought life, uh, the things that I say, uh, my actions, all of it are yours. That's what it means for Christ to be Lord of your life, to be master. If you've done those things, you've made him Savior and Lord of your life, and the Holy Spirit comes and makes his place in you. And if you do that, then your life will be controlled by the Spirit. You won't be able to help it. It will just be naturally flowing out of you. And you will resist sin. You see, the problem is, as we talked about this third camp, there's a lot of people who, who say somebody, you know, that person's such a good person because they're generous or they serve or they care for people. But Paul says a person that has never received Christ's forgiveness, never made him Lord of their life, cannot please God, no matter how good they think they are. Why? It's because they reject his son. So there might be, you know, this, this Hindu or this Muslim that's a really great person and serves everybody and all that stuff, and people say, oh, but they just, you know, they were so good, or, or even just a normal person here in the United States who's just a morally nice person. 
but, but still rejects Christ? God says, you cannot please me if you do that. Because this goodness that you're doing, you're, you're not doing it for God's glory, you're doing it for your own. John the Baptist said this in John 3. He said, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Let's look at verse 9, Romans. He says, you, however are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. So here Paul is reminding us again of what our true identity is. He's reminding the Romans at that time and, and us today that if we are in Christ, here are some things that are, are true. Is one of those things is that you no longer live, live according to your sinful nature. I don't know if you noticed in that passage, but there were some, some big butts in there. <sighs> one commentator I read this week, he said this. He said his favorite word in scripture is but, with one T. He said a lot of relief comes from that word. There's a giant hopeful but in another letter Paul wrote. I want you to flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, page 811, just a little bit to the right. Ephesians chapter 2. This is an amazing passage. Page 811, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order, and we talked about, guys, that that's a present reality. That if we are in Christ, we are currently, God sees us currently seated with Christ in heaven because he sees all of time played out before him. So he sees you in Christ, right now, seated with him in the heavenly realms. And that's why he looks at you and says, live like the person I know you are. I see you in your glorified state. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Man, those first three verses weren't looking too good. But then verse 4, there's that big but. Man, because of his great love for us. Hmm. God did what we could not do for ourselves. He freed us from the law of sin and death and he made us alive in Christ. 
So how do we live in the Spirit? How, when we wake up in the morning, how do we make sure that we are not living according to our sinful nature, but we are living according to the Spirit, and that those are the things that concern us? Well, a few things come to mind, I think. One is that we need to refresh ourselves over and over again on the magnitude of God's love for us. We have to read about it. We have to listen to other people talk about it. We need to to memorize it and have it right there on the tip of our mind, the tip of our tongue, so that we can be reminded of who we are and how much God loves us when the enemy or the world or people want to tell us that we're not that valuable, that we're not worth that much. We need to know it so well, know the story of God's love for us, that it's just, it's, it's a given that we understand that that's true. But probably most importantly, we need to remember the joy of our own salvation. We need to remember how far God went to rescue each one of us. And sometimes when I, I like to, to write my prayers, because that's the only way I can keep my mind focused. Um, and I, man, so many days I have to start with gratitude. And, and I just have to sit and I just have to write and just go back to that time when I didn't know God. And remember the things that he did for me and just write it again. Thank you for saving me. Because then once I write that, I mean, it changes the whole perspective on what I'm going to pray about the rest of that time. Secondly, we need to celebrate the resurrected life in community with others. What does that mean? I mean we need to celebrate the resurrected life and not the fleshly life. When we gather together with our Christian friends, and hopefully you do that, you have people in your life who are are on the same journey with you, when you get together with them, you need to be more excited about the change that we're seeing in people's lives than we are about the new house that they got, or the new car they're driving, or the new cell phone they got, or the new hairdo they have, or the new clothes they're wearing, or whatever earthly thing that we spend our time getting excited about. Not that there might not be some reasons to celebrate some of those earthly things sometimes. It's okay to be like, oh, cool, you got a promotion at work. That's awesome. But we need to really celebrate when we're with our Christian friends, change in people. That's something worth getting exciting about. Seeing somebody in your peer circle become more like Christ. And so when we're in community with other people, we need to be encouraging people. We need to be praying for people. We need to be challenging them to be more like Jesus. How do we spend our time when we get together with our Christian friends? If somebody walked into that room, would they know that this is a collection of people who call themselves followers of Christ based on what they're getting excited about? Finally, to live the spirit-filled life with our hearts and minds focus on the things of God, we need to join him on his mission. You see, when we're engaged in, in, in the mission of Christ and what God is doing in the world, when we take the gifts that we used to use for sinful things, for selfish things, those talents that God gave you that you're good at, and then we transform them and transmit them now into kingdom things, man, it, it's hard to not feel alive. Because when I use my gifts for God, it makes me want to pray more. I'm surprised by my desire to serve, my desire to love, my desire to give. It's those Christians that are just kind of on the sidelines, filling the pews, 
but really not joining God in mission throughout the week, that have a hard time living a spirit-filled life. Because guess what? That they're not being stretched and challenged. They're not having to rely on him for anything. The life that they're living, they could do without Jesus. You need to be putting yourself in places where if God doesn't show up, this is going to be embarrassing and can go really badly. Then you'll be amazed at how much you'll pray. I was having lunch with, with Nick Kodeman, our, our rock star lead singer, the other day, and he was talking about, is that a fair description of you, Nick? Yeah? Okay. Just wanted to make sure. Um, Nick had, had skin cancer and um, several years ago, kind of around the time we were starting the church, and so for a five-year period after that, he had to go each year and get tested to make sure that it was clear it wasn't coming back. And he has a, a friend now that is kind of going through a similar experience, and, and it kind of rekindled all of those feelings that he used to have, that, that anxiety and worry, um, you know, as he get, get those test results back during that five-year time. And he was talking about um, just remembering the joy and the elation, like each time, one of those five years, he got a, a clear report back, just how much joy there was in that. And he was talking about, man, I wish sometimes that I could have that kind of joy just in my relationship with God. Because I, I got really excited about that test result. But sometimes I feel like my faith is just kind of blah, you know, sometimes. And so he was just asking me, you know, do you have any suggestions of how to keep that joy fresh? And the first thing that came to my mind, for whatever reason, is I just said, man, I think you need to tell your story. Because any time that I'm sharing with somebody else what God did for me, how he met me where I was far from him and he rescued me and redeemed me and what it's meant for my life, man, it is hard to not get excited. And so I just challenge him. It's like, man, you know, find some ways to, to share your story. Because while I'm sharing my story, it, 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 it rekindles my appreciation and my love for God, but it also makes me really aware of people who I know in, the, in my life that still don't have that peace and joy and, and hope that I have in Christ, and it makes me want to pray for them more. It makes me want to seek them out and love them and be patient with them. When was the last time you shared your story of how God transformed your life? How long has it been? How fresh is that in your heart right now? As we take communion today, I want, I want there to be two, two focuses for you, okay? We're going to give you some silence the first thing I want you to focus on is I want you to, to think back and I want you to remember and recall that moment or that season in your life where God met you. While you were still sinner, God came into your life and just said, man, I love you and, and I've, I've got you now. And I want you to remember that, the emotions and the feelings that came with that. And um, I, I want you to think about how your life has been different because of that moment. And I want you to, to thank God for that. And then when you're done with that, I want you to think about other people in your life right now who you cross paths with regularly, who you know do not have that same hope, that same joy, that same peace that you have. And I want you to pray for them. Because that's what this is all about, man. Jesus came into the world to save, not to condemn came to save us that we might have life and so when we take communion it's not only just thank you god for forgiving me but man god motivate me to want others to have that as well that's why we come here on sunday morning 
right, to celebrate what God's doing in our life, but to energize us to go back out into the world with people that need Christ. So we'll give you a few minutes of silence. The ushers will dismiss you to come down and take communion. Um, But use this time to reflect on what God's done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. The God who is rich in mercy, abounding in love and faithfulness. And God, I pray as we examine our lives that we would would see evidence of a spirit-filled life that more and more the things of God would be on our mind and, and in our heart, and we would be concerned about those things and not the things of the flesh, not the selfish things. God, capture our heart this morning, remembering your great love for us.